Hello, and welcome to another episode of Headmere's ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Patrick Kiesling, and today we have a special rapid review episode for you. For this episode, we've created a compilation of back-to-back episode summaries with some of the key takeaways from our previously published Facial Plastics episodes. So, sit back and listen to some of the highlights from this series. To summarize, facial burns are challenging to manage because of their variety in presentation and frequency of other bodily injuries. Whenever evaluating a facial burn, you should be thinking about inhalational burns as well, particularly if the patient has singed nasal hairs, carbonaceous sputum, or was in an enclosed space at the time of injury. Total body surface area of burns is often estimated very precisely at burn centers using a provider well-versed in accurate burn estimation. That being said, we're often taught to roughly estimate total body surface area of anything more than a superficial burn using the rule of nines, namely 9% assigned to each arm and the head and 18% assigned to each leg, the anterior trunk, and the posterior trunk. In areas of patchy involvement, a palm-sized area can be roughly approximated as 1% total body surface area. Debridement is usually conducted within 7 to 10 days with the goal of removing necrotic tissue that spurs local inflammation, and the wound bed is often prepared with a cadaveric allograft or with synthetic graft to ensure adequate vascular supply before skin grafting. Unlike with other areas of the body, scarring needs to be minimized in the face, and skin grafts should not be meshed, just pie-crusted, enough to prevent seroma formation under the graft. They're also typically taken from like-appearing tissue, often from the scalp. Scar contracture leading to decreased neck range of motion, ectropion, or microstomia are common complications that are often treated with laser therapy or local tissue release after acute injury has resolved. As always, we'll end with a few review questions. I'll ask the question, wait for a moment to let you think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then give the answer. To start off, how does the biochemical pathway of burn healing affect management? We are often asked about the biochemical pathways that lead to burn progression. So just to quickly review, that starts with the inflammatory stage with neutrophil and then macrophage and fibroblast influx during the first week, progresses to a proliferative stage with re-epithelialization, neovascularization, type 3 collagen deposition, and wound contraction, usually up until about three weeks after injury, and then progresses to remodeling from three weeks to about 12 months after injury largely with replacement of type 3 with type 1 collagen. That being said, the lack of therapeutic targets within these pathways and variability of response in patients with concomitant injuries, particularly in terms of systemic inflammation, limits its practical utility in treating burns. The main takeaway is that remodeling takes a long time, up to a year or more, during which time burns will continue to evolve, so patients should be followed for evidence of scar, hypertrophy, contracture, or hyperpigmentation during that time. Next up, describe how we define the severity of a burn. For a bonus, how do we treat them differently in broad strokes? Burns are often described as first, second, and third degree, or alternatively as superficial, partial thickness, and full thickness burns. First degree, or superficial burns, involve the epidermis only, whereas second degree, or partial thickness burns, extend into the dermis, and third degree, or full thickness burns, extend through the dermis into the subcutaneous fat. 
fourth degree burn is a term that is not frequently used anymore, but historically refers to extension down into muscle or bone. For the bonus, uh, maybe a bit of a guess what I'm thinking question, but remember that partial thickness or second degree burns can be superficial, i.e. involving the papillary dermis, or deep involving both the papillary and reticular dermis. Superficial partial thickness burns, in addition to first degree burns, can heal with conservative management only, whereas deep partial thickness or more severe burns require debridement and grafting. And finally, what is the role of antibiotics in the management of burns? Topical antibiotics are a must for all burn management as compromised vascular supply and necrotic tissue creates an ideal medium for infection. Systemic antibiotics, on the other hand, are not indicated unless there are signs of additional systemic infection. In terms of which topicals to use, typically these have both antibiotic and emollient properties to improve moisturization of the dry burn bed. Silver sulfadiazine, or silvadine, is commonly used but may cause neutropenia and many institutions have started moving towards silver-containing solid face dressings for ease of use. Other topicals to consider include hemaphonide acetate or sulfamylon, another broad spectrum that penetrates ASCAR as well, uh, but patients need to be monitored for hypochloremic acidosis. Our old faithful bacitracin ointment is typically reserved for more superficial injuries, and silver nitrate is infrequently used because of poor eschar penetration and the ability to cause broad electrolyte derangements. That wraps up our discussion on facial burns. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. To briefly summarize, there are a number of etiologies of alopecia, the most common of which is androgenic alopecia. This most frequently presents in men as male pattern baldness, beginning with bitemporal recession and progressing to vertex balding, but can also affect women. Other hormonal etiologies such as hypothyroidism and infectious etiologies such as dermatophytes, demodex, folliculorum, and syphilis can also cause alopecia, but typically present in patchy distributions and can include skin changes. Alopecia can be graded on the Norwood scale from 1 to 7 for male pattern baldness or on the Ludwig scale from 1 to 3 for female androgenic alopecia. When assessing these patients, noting skin-to-hair color match and hair curl and density is important, as is assessing a patient's susceptibility to scar formation. Some labs, such as TSH, free T3, T4, Iron and some vitamin levels are important in ruling out other systemic etiologies of hair loss before proceeding with treatment. Many non-surgical treatment options exist, including minoxidil, finasteride, dutestride, and linataprost, as well as laser therapy to improve blood flow to the scalp, which promote hair growth and can improve results after surgical therapies. When considering surgery, we should consider expected future hair loss patterns and creating an age-appropriate, natural-appearing hairline. Surgical options can include strip grafting and follicular unit transplantation, which are most common, as well as punch grafts and jury flaps, which are much less commonly used. Strip grafting is often used for larger defects and to create the frontal hairline, whereas follicular unit transplantation is more commonly used when there is limited donor hair available or in patients who might shave their head in the future. It is important to counsel patients on expected post-transplantation hair loss, which can be due to initially poor blood flow to follicles, as well as telogen effluvium, or the expected hair loss that occurs when transplanted hair appropriately enters the telogen phase and falls out. Other complications can include scarring, particularly with strip grafting, ingrown hairs, 
failure of transplanted hairs to grow and progression of alopecia to make transplanted hair undesirable. Transplanted follicles are very susceptible to mechanical injury and dehydration and need to be sprayed with water and protected with a loose cap in the immediate postoperative period. It typically takes about 12 to 18 months after transplantation to see the final expected result. Before we go, we'll wrap up with a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments, and then say the answer. Starting off, what are the three phases of follicle growth? The three phases of follicle growth are antigen, catagen, and telogen. The antigen phase is a growth phase lasting about three years, and a majority of our follicles are in this phase at any time. Catagen is an involutional phase lasting about three weeks, and telogen is a resting phase lasting about three months. What is the most common topical medication prescribed for alopecia? Minoxidil, also known as Rogaine, is the most common topical medication prescribed for alopecia. Minoxidil acts by lengthening the antigen phase and increasing blood supply to the follicle. And lastly, as somewhat of a bonus question since we didn't go into it in depth during the episode, describe a jury flap and what it is used for. A jury flap is a temporoparietal rotation flap that is used to treat frontal balding. Its blood supply is the superficial temporal artery, and it should be noted that this is a very uncommon procedure today given advances in strip grafting, follicular unit transplantation, and non-surgical treatment options. As a brief summary, gender dysphoria is a DSM-5 diagnosis of clinically significant distress or impairment secondary to a patient feeling incongruence between their assigned gender and their experienced or expressed gender. A multimodal treatment plan based on patient preference and need is recommended and may include hormonal therapy, mental health support, and gender-affirming surgeries, which for the otolaryngologist generally revolve around facial plastic surgery for facial feminization or masculinization and laryngology procedures for voice feminization. A patient's goals for facial plastic surgery can revolve around dysphoria or a personal dissatisfaction with a facial feature or features or concern about being misgendered by others. When assessing the face for gendered appearance, we often assess in thirds, with the upper third generally thought to have the biggest impact on gender perception overall. Facial feminization procedures are usually much more common than masculinization procedures, largely because of the masculinizing effects of testosterone hormone therapy on facial features. A number of different procedures are often undertaken, including forehead and supraorbital ridge contouring, scalp advancement and brow lift in the upper third, rhinoplasty, midfacial osteotomies and cheek implantations in the middle third, and lip augmentation, chin reduction or advancement, and mandibular reduction or osteotomy in the lower third. Chondrolaryngoplasty, also called a tracheal shave, is commonly employed in feminizing gender-affirming surgeries to reduce the prominence of the thyroid cartilage. In addition to the standard facial plastics postoperative complications like infection, bleeding, and patient dissatisfaction, surgeons performing gender-affirming surgery need to consider the cumulative effect and timing of multiple facial surgeries. Lastly, it should be repeated that there are significant social, emotional, and socioeconomic barriers to patients receiving appropriate treatment for gender dysphoria, 
and the number of patients desiring gender-affirming facial surgery continues to outpace the rate at which these surgeries are being performed. And lastly, we'll finish up with a couple review questions. I'll read the question, pause for a few moments to let you answer, and then answer the question. Starting off, which facial features are often attributed to a masculine-appearing face and which to a feminine-appearing face? See if you can name at least one per facial third. Specific facial features that are often attributed to a male-gendered appearance include frontal bossing, an M-shaped hairline, flatter eyebrows, greater intercanthal distance, flatter zygoma, straighter dorsum or dorsal hump, smaller nasolabial angle, thinner lips with less vermilion and incisor show, more prominent mandibular flare and chin projection, and a more prominent thyroid cartilage. More feminine features are largely the opposite of these, such as an O-shaped hairline, curved eyebrows, a more heart-shaped face, concave dorsum and super tip break, fuller lips with more vermilion and incisor show, a narrower, more pointed chin, and minimal prominence of the thyroid cartilage. What is a major complication of chondrolaryngoplasty, and what surgical techniques can be used to avoid this? Destabilization of the anterior commissure of the vocal cords can occur with chondrolaryngoplasty and is a debilitating voice outcome that is very difficult to reverse. External translaryngeal needle insertion into the thyroid cartilage under fiberoptic visualization through an LMA can be used to identify the anterior commissure and prevent this complication. And to wrap up, which professional organization provides guidelines for the treatment of gender dysphoria? The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, also known as WPATH, is a professional organization that provides guidelines for the treatment of gender dysphoria and includes standards of care for medical professionals providing hormonal therapy, voice therapy, gender-affirming surgeries, and mental health support. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. So to quickly summarize what we've talked about today, facial palsy can occur from central or peripheral nerve lesions, or rarely from dysfunction of facial musculature itself, and occurs in a number of different stages defined from time of symptom onset. Acute facial palsy usually describes the first two weeks with continued potential for spontaneous recovery within those first six to 12 months. And chronic facial palsy often describes the time period after about a year from symptom onset. Reinnervation is possible from around 12 to 24 months after paralysis, though that's usually practically limited to 12 to 18 months. And after 24 months, flaccid musculature is largely non-viable, requiring static suspensions or muscle transfer. Post-paralytic or non-flaccid facial palsy occurs when aberrant nerve regeneration causes synkinesis and can occur any time after about six months from symptom onset. When assessing patients, we're looking mainly for regions of facial asymmetry and facial dysfunction, especially in terms of eye closure, external nasal valve function, and smile. A number of different facial grading systems are used to quantify the degree of facial dysfunction, with House Brackman being the most common, but others such as the Sunnybrook and E-Face grading systems used for improved zonal and synkinetic assessment.
Imaging is mainly focused on pre- and post-op standardized photographs, but further workup uh, could include MRI, CT, or even serologies if you're concerned for another underlying pathology. Management options are varied and include Botox and fillers for improving symmetry or reducing synkinesis, static suspension for improving symmetry, resting tone, and facial function, myectomy or neurectomy to address synkinesis, reinnervation, usually with masseteric, hypoglossal, or contralateral facial nerves, and muscle transfer with delayed reinnervation for smile reconstruction, often with temporalis or gracilis muscle. Oftentimes, patients are treated with multiple interventions at once or sequentially based on their symptom pattern. There is a high success rate with these procedures, though setting reasonable expectations for outcomes is very important, and these patients often require long-term follow-up for continued management of facial asymmetry. It's almost time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, we'll end with a couple of questions for review. As always, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds before answering it to give you time to come up with the answer or to pause the podcast, and then I'll give you the answer. For our first question, define the time ranges after onset of facial palsy when spontaneous recovery is expected and when viable musculature exists for reinnervation. Spontaneous recovery is expected in an intact facial nerve up to about 6 to 12 months after symptom onset, and reanimation procedures are generally not performed during that time window. Muscles remain viable for reinnervation up to about 18 to 24 months after facial palsy onset, and facial reanimation usually occurs within about a 12 to 18 month window, often leaning toward the earlier side to allow time for axonal regeneration from the site of neurography to the motor end plate. What aspects of history or physical exam of facial palsy patients are concerning for an underlying pathology requiring further workup? Aspects of the history or physical exam of facial palsy patients that are concerning for some underlying pathology would include insidious or prolonged time to onset of facial palsy, recurrent facial palsy, segmental or bilateral involvement, other involved cranial nerves such as vision changes, hearing changes, numbness, or otalgia, or systemic symptoms like weakness or paresthesias. Put differently, the astute clinician should consider further investigation of anything that isn't rapid-onset, isolated, hemifacial palsy. What surgical and non-surgical options exist for restoring facial symmetry in chronic facial paralysis without ability for reinnervation? Botox injections and facial fillers can be used on both the affected and unaffected sides in flaccid and non-flaccid paralysis to improve symmetry. For flaccid paralysis, surgical options are mainly limited to static and dynamic reanimation techniques, including eyelid weights, static suspensions of the brow, oral commissure, or nasal valves, and regional or free muscle transfers. Non-flaccid paralysis additionally has options of physical therapy, neurectomy, and myectomy, as well as chemodenervation, nerve transfer, and muscle transfer. And finally, which nerves are typically used in facial reinnervation, and when are they utilized? 
Reinnervation is most commonly performed with the ipsilateral masseteric nerve, but can also be performed with the ipsilateral hypoglossal nerve or the contralateral facial nerve, also called a cross face. The masseter is often used for a very consistent result, but doesn't allow for good resting tone of the face. The hypoglossal nerve gives the best resting tone, but often will result in tongue weakness that can become problematic, especially for older patients. The cross-face nerve graft hypothetically allows for the best chance for a symmetric or spontaneous smile, but has unreliable results and has a higher chance of failure. Nerve transfer for flaccid paralysis should be performed within a year of symptom onset, ideally by six to nine months, but this limitation does not exist in non-flaccid paralysis because of muscle viability through synkinetic synapses at the motor end plates. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. So mandible fractures are the second most common type of facial fracture behind nasal bone fractures. Typically, they present in the setting of an MVC or an assault, and this helps to explain their epidemiologic predilection for younger males. Um, when you're talking to the trauma team after they consult you, it's really good to get an idea of where is the patient headed? You know, Are they intubated already? Are they going to the OR? Are there any lacerations that require suturing that you're going to have to deal with later? When you go to evaluate the patient, being a careful student of their dentition and occlusion is key, uh, keeping in mind the importance of crossbite as well. Talked about different management options for these patients that chiefly surround getting the patient into their native occlusion and stabilizing any unstable fractures. Um, talked about the importance of MMF as well as the importance for ORIF um, in the appropriate setting. Um, Follow-up is largely dictated by what you did, obviously, but patients that are being primarily or exclusively treated with MMF are actually followed more frequently, typically in two-week blocks over time to make sure that they're not having any complications or deviating from their, their good occlusion. All right, now it's time to transition to the closing portion of the podcast where I will ask a question, pause for a couple seconds, give you a chance to think about it, and then give you the answer. First question for today is, what is Angle's classification for molar occlusion? Angle's classification for molar occlusion is split up into three classes, where class one is normal occlusion and is defined by the mesial buccal cusp of the maxillary first molar lying in the buccal groove of the mandibular first molar. Class 2 is retronathic or overjet, where the mandible sits more posteriorly. And class 3 is pro, more pronathic, where the mandible sits more anteriorly. Next question is define horizontally and vertically unfavorable fractures. A horizontally unfavorable fracture is one that is unable to resist the upward displacing forces on the mandible by muscles of mastication when viewed in the horizontal or sagittal plane. Muscles typically responsible for horizontal unfavorability include the temporalis, masseter, and medial pterygoid. Vertically unfavorable fractures are fractures that are unable to resist the medial displacing forces on the mandible by the muscles of mastication when viewed in the vertical or axial plane 
Muscles typically responsible for vertical and favorability include the medial pterygoids, suprahyoid muscles, and digastric muscles. And last question of the day, describe the indications for open reduction of subcondylar fractures. The classic indications for open reduction of subcondylar fractures include invasion of the joint by a foreign body, lateral extracapsular displacement, inability to achieve occlusion with closed reduction, or involvement of the middle cranial fossa or external auditory canal by the fracture. So to briefly summarize what we've talked about today, facial resurfacing encompasses primarily dermabrasion, chemical peels, and laser therapy, and is typically used to minimize deep, fine wrinkles, tighten skin, decrease hyperpigmentation, remove some skin lesions such as actinic keratoses, hair removal, or treatment of both active acne and acne scars. When considering how facial resurfacing works, it's important to remember the layers of the skin, particularly the difference between the papillary dermis with looser connective tissues and smaller vasculature and nerves from reticular dermis with denser connective tissues, larger vessels and nerves, and adnexal structures such as hair follicles, sweat and sebaceous glands, and lymphatics. Dermabrasion, ablative lasers, and more superficial peels only penetrate the epidermis up to the superficial papillary dermis to promote regrowth of damaged skin through uniform reepithelialization and fibroblast-induced collagen deposition, while deeper peels penetrate into the deeper papillary dermis or superficial reticular dermis for deeper scars, lesions, or wrinkles. Lasers act by stimulating heat production within a particular chromophore to induce damage and, in the case of hair removal, follicle destruction, but need to be absorbed by the follicle during the antigen phase, and thus require multiple treatments in order to catch all the follicles at various stages in the hair growth cycle. When examining these patients, it's important to note the patient's Fitzpatrick skin tone, as patients with Fitzpatrick 4 or higher have a greater risk of undesired hyperpigmentation as well as noting other characteristics, such as degree of wrinkling or lower lid laxity if the patient is having periorbital resurfacing, and of course, including pre- and post-treatment photo documentation. When working these patients up, care should be taken to assess for certain absolute contraindications for chemical peels, such as hepatorenal disease, immunosuppressed status, a history of collagen vascular disorders, or a recent history of oral isotretinoin use, though this is controversial. We should also be assessing for relative contraindications such as skin tone of Fitzpatrick 4 or greater, a history of keloid formation, HSV reactivation, or cardiac abnormalities, as well as any history of significant irradiation or sun exposure. Pretreatments in patients undergoing facial resurfacing is very important. Minimizing sun exposure for four to six weeks and topical retinoic acid pretreatment to compact the stratum corneum and provide more uniform resurfacing. Many patients are also given hydroquinone typically as a deep pigmenting agent to prevent hyperpigmentation and antiviral HSV prophylaxis to prevent reactivation. When considering treatment options, dermabrasion is a relatively consistent procedure involving mechanical abrasion of the epidermis down to the superficial papillary dermis heralded by seeing pinpoint bleeding. Chemical peels and lasers are more flexible and can have various properties such as solution concentration or pulse duration and density varied to provide different degrees of tissue damage. 
We reviewed a number of chemical peels, including salicylic acid, glycolic acid, trichloroacetic acid, and Jessner solution peels, which are used in superficial or medium-depth peels, as well as Baker solution, which is a mixture of phenol, the main denaturing agent, croton oil, a carolytic, and septosol, and it's used for deeper peels. Laser therapy is largely categorized into ablative therapy, focusing on thermal injury to water-containing tissues, leading to tissue retraction or scar reduction, and non-ablative, focusing on thermal injury to pigment molecules and removing tattoos, reducing hyperpigmentation in tissues, or targeting melanin and hair follicles for hair removal. CO2 and erbium YAG lasers have water as a chromophore and thus result in ablative laser therapy, while KTP, pulse dye, and NDAG lasers, among others, have various pigment chromophores, including hemoglobin. Patients who undergo facial resurfacing are usually provided an occlusive dressing until reepithelialization is complete and should avoid sun exposure with good use of sunblock to avoid hyperpigmentation. Other complications after resurfacing include erythema, hypopigmentation, milia, infection, and facial scarring, as well as ectropion. Rare but more serious complications can include laryngeal edema, arrhythmia, renal failure, or even toxic shock. Multiple treatments are needed often, particularly with laser hair removal, typically spaced four to six weeks apart, and treatment for hyperpigmentation, typically spaced about six weeks apart. Duration of effect can vary depending largely on how much collagen and elastin a patient's skin lays down and on patient avoidance of further photoaging. We're almost done with our episode, but before we end, we'll wrap up with a few review questions. As usual, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments to give you time to think of the answer or pause the episode, and then I'll give the answer. First up, what type of cell synthesizes collagen during wound healing? And what type of collagen is laid down primarily in early wound healing? Fibroblasts synthesize collagen in the skin and produce mainly type 3 collagen in early wound healing. This is converted to type 1 collagen as the wound matures. What is hydroquinone used for in facial resurfacing and what's its mechanism of action? Hydroquinone is a tyrosinase inhibitor, which prevents melanin precursors from being synthesized in the skin. This is used to prevent hyperpigmentation in response to tissue damage induced during facial resurfacing. And finally, which surgical lasers have water as a chromophore? CO2 and erbium YAG lasers have water as a chromophore and are used in ablative laser therapy. Remember that KTP, PDL, and NDAG lasers have hemoglobin as a chromophore, and NDAG and alexandrite have blue-black pigment as chromophores as well. Finally, as a short summary, when we talk about facial injectables and fillers, we're mainly referring to chemodenervation agents such as botulinum toxin derivatives, which cleave various proteins in the snare complex to prevent acetylcholine release at the presynaptic junction, and bulking agents, which provide dermal support and promote collagen and elastin production and can be autologous, biologic, or synthetic. These are used to reverse volume loss within the face, for instance, with lipoatrophy or scarring, facial deformity, facial paralysis, and to minimize wrinkling. 
and notably are able to treat both static and dynamic wrinkles. When assessing a patient in clinic, it is important to assess dynamic facial movements and to elicit any history of prior therapy or facial injectable or filler treatment, history of vascular occlusions or recent dental work, in addition to typical static facial analysis and photo documentation. Pretreatments such as stopping blood thinners to include supplements and aspirin, as well as HSV prophylaxis and antihistamine use day of treatment to prevent swelling are commonly used. When using chemodenervation agents, agent selection is often patient and provider preference driven, but another factor in agent selection is whether the patient has developed tolerance to a particular subtype through antibody production. The main targets for chemodenervation agents are the corrugator supercilii and proceris for globular lines, the mentalis for a dimpled or peau d'orange chin, the frontalis for forehead lines, the orbicularis oculi for crow's feet, the levator labii superioris for a gummy smile, the DAO, and platysmal banding and any synkinetic muscle in facial paralysis. Fillers are often chosen based on location of injection, patient preference, and cost, with hyaluronic acid currently the most commonly used. Fillers are typically aimed at the nasolabial folds or other deep wrinkles, along the zygoma for mid-face volumization, the temporalis fossa for hollowing, or along the jaw or lip for contouring, augmentation, or lipoatrophy. Complications from filler agents include bruising, filler migration, granuloma formation, or hypersensitivity reactions, though a more serious filler-related complication is vascular occlusion that can lead to tissue necrosis or blindness. Vascular occlusion risk can be reduced with careful injectable placement, aspiration before injection, and careful monitoring for blanching or pain, and hyaluronidase can be used to reverse occlusion with hyaluronic acid. Other treatments can include aspirin, administration, and warm compress application. Chemodenervation commonly causes minimal bruising, though other complications can include unintended ptosis. Ptosis can be treated with topical apoclonidine to stimulate Mueller's muscle and reverse the levator infiltration of the chemodenervation agent. Duration of effect of injectables varies, with most chemodenervation agents lasting for approximately 3 to 4 months and fillers lasting anywhere from 6 to 18 months to lasting permanently, depending on the product used. Before we go, we'll finish up with a few questions. Per usual, I'll ask the question, pause for a few seconds to give you time to think of the answer or pause the episode, and then I'll give the answer. To start, how do chemodenervation agents work? And what is the specific mechanism of action of Botox? Chemodenervation agents work broadly to prevent presynaptic acetylcholine release at the neuromuscular junction by interfering with various proteins within the snare complex, a protein complex that enables fusion of acetylcholine-containing vesicles to the presynaptic membrane for release. Botox specifically cleaves SNAP25, one of the protein subunits of SNARE. What are some synthetic facial fillers used? See if you can name at least two. Examples of synthetic facial fillers include calcium hydroxyapatite, polylactic acid, polymethylmethacrylate, and hyaluronic acid. 
Silicone is beginning to be used off-label for facial fillers as well, in spite of a previous ban on its use. And lastly, how does tolerance to chemodenervation agents develop? With repeated exposure, patients can develop neutralizing antibodies to a particular chemodenervating agent, creating tolerance and necessitating the use of a new agent for desired effect. To briefly summarize, today we covered Laforte and Zygomatica maxillary midface fractures, which can involve all the large bones of the skull and the seven bones of the orbit, as well as multiple facial buttresses. We reviewed Lefort classifications into Lefort 1 through 3 and the Zing classification, which breaks zygomatic fractures down into types A through C. Patients with Lefort fractures classically present with mid-face retrusion and malocclusion with an anterior open bite and may have mid-face mobility or asymmetric fracture patterns, but can also have pseudoaneurysm, dental damage, and palatal split fractures. Patients with zygomatic fractures often present with loss of malar prominence or trismus, but can also have periorbital ecchymosis or edema, cheek numbness, diplopia, hypoglobus, enophthalmos, or epistaxis that can require nasal packing. Notably, these patients often have multiple concomitant facial fractures like nasal, orbital, or NOE fractures because of the high energy involved in these injury patterns. CT facial is the mainstay of diagnosis with these patients, so you should consider CT and geography if the patient has a Lefort 3 fracture based on the mechanism or if the patient is experiencing delayed intermittent epistaxis concerning for pseudoaneurysm. These fractures usually require open fixation but can include more conservative management including closed reduction and splinting or arch bar fixation. Indications to operate include facial aesthetic change or functional impairment, usually with malocclusion, trismus, vision changes, palatal fracture, and sometimes with significant involvement of a facial buttress. Operative fixation ideally should be performed within 24 to 48 hours, but can be safely performed before 10 to 14 days to prevent scarring, fibrotic changes, and bony resorption from beginning. Generally, treating these operatively includes initial reduction of fractures with further stabilization using mini plates, intramaxillary fixation, or bone grafts for significant bone loss. Surgical approaches for ZMC fractures include the named Gillies approach through the temporal scalp and intraoral keen approach, as well as options for gingivobuccal sulcus, coronal, upper or lower bleph, and less commonly lateral brow incisions for additional exposure always being mindful of not damaging surrounding structures while generating enough force to achieve adequate reduction. Lefort fractures are usually surgically approached similarly and involve reducing the fracture, placing the patient in maxillomandibular fixation, and then stabilizing buttresses, usually focused on the nasomaxillary and inferior orbital rim buttresses and the ZM or ZF articulations. Postoperatively, patients should be put on a soft, no-chew diet for a few weeks, sinus precautions, and wound care with nasal irrigation and oral rinses, and can also be started on post-op antibiotics if they have dental injury. The main complications from ZMC and Lefort fracture operative repair are secondary to incomplete reduction and include continued or new trismus, facial asymmetry, palpable or visible plates, malunion or nonunion, and impaired nasal breathing. Other complications can include forehead and cheek hypesthesia from injury to the supraorbital and infraorbital nerves, 
dental injury, mid-face ptosis, or eyelid or lacrimal injury. Thinner or absorbable plates are sometimes used to avoid plate extrusion or visibility, but otherwise treating the underlying condition resulting in the complication, such as infection or inappropriate activity, and possible surgical revision are the mainstays of treatment for complications. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. As usual, we'll end with a couple of review questions. Like always, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments to allow you to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then I'll give the answer. Starting off, describe the Lafort classifications. A Lafort 1 fracture consists of a horizontal fracture through the maxilla and nasal septum and the lateral nasal walls, lateral maxillary sinus, and extends into the pterygomaxillary junction. A Lafort 2 fracture is a pyramidal fracture involving the nasofrontal sutures, medial and inferior orbital walls, and zygomatic maxillary suture, as well as the lateral maxillary sinus and pterygomaxillary junction, like in a Lafort 1. A Lafort 3 fracture results in craniofacial disjunction involving the frontal process of the maxilla, lacrimal bones, ethmoid sinus, orbital floor and inferior orbital fissure, ZF suture, and zygomatic arch, in addition to the nasal frontal suture and pterygoid plates from a Lafort 2. What is the characteristic deformity associated with mid-face fractures? The characteristic deformity associated with mid-face fractures are an anterior open bite and mid-face retrusion. This is from unopposed posterior and inferior traction on the mobile maxillary fragment by the medial and lateral pterygoid muscles. And finally, what approaches would be most appropriate for an isolated, simple, or non-comminuted zygomatic arch fracture? A Gillies approach through a temporal incision or a Keen approach through a transoral incision would be most appropriate for an isolated, simple zygomatic arch fracture. To briefly summarize what we've talked about today, periorbital aging can be generally divided into two separate but often co-occurring issues, brow ptosis, or droopy eyebrow, and blepharotosis, or droopy eyelid. These are usually secondary to aging, but can also be due to other causes generally categorized as neurogenic, such as myasthenia gravis or Horner syndrome, myogenic, such as myositis, aponeurotic, such as levator dehiscence, or mechanical, such as tumor. When evaluating these patients, it's important to ask about history of xerophthalmia, and on physical exam, we should be looking for festooning, pseudoherniation, and herrings phenomenon to assess for asymmetric bilateral blepharotosis in addition to doing normal facial analysis and assessing for any visual defects. You should also measure MRD1 and MRD2, or the distance between the corneal light reflex and the upper and lower eyelids respectively, or perform a Schirmer test or SNAP test to quantify degree of blepharitosis. Surgically, brow lifts can be performed via endoscopic, coronal, mid-forehead, and direct techniques with the coronal approach having pretracheal and trichophytic variants based on location of incision relative to hairline. The endoscopic approach involves a subperiosteal dissection and the coronal approach a subgaleal dissection, but both tend to elevate the hairline, whereas direct techniques and the much lesser used mid-forehead technique do not affect the hairline but have a more prominent incision placement on the forehead. 
Upper lid blepharoplasties are mainly composed of skin excision, but can also include creation of a supratarsal crease. But lower lid blepharoplasties can be performed through preceptal or postseptal transconjunctival approaches, which vary in whether the orbital septum is violated to achieve different dissection planes, and the subsiliary approach. When assessing surgical outcomes, we want to keep in mind the ideal eyebrow and lid positions for the patient based on their gender and whether or not they have a supratarsal crease, as with the termed Asian eyelid. The major complication associated with brow lift that we want to avoid is frontal branch damage, which can be avoided by meticulous identification of the frontal branch using the sentinel vein and the patangae line. Other complications of brow lift include pruritus, alopecia, numbness, or excessive brow elevation. And for blepharoplasty, include milia, lagophthalmos, ectropion, diplopia, A-frame deformity, lid webbing, and hematoma, particularly retrobulbar hematoma that can lead to blindness. Results from brow lift and blepharoplasty are expected to be permanent, but notably, aging continues normally for these patients after surgery. So before we end, we'll finish up with a couple of review questions. As usual, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments to allow you to think of the answer or to pause the podcast, and then I'll read off the answer. To start off, what is the difference between blepharitosis, blepharochalasis, and dermatochalasis? Blepharitosis generally describes an eyelid that is less open than normal usually defined as MRD1 less than 4 to 5 millimeters. Dermatochalasis refers to excess skin of the superior eyelid, which, when extending beyond the eyelashes, is sometimes referred to as pseudotosis. Blepharochalasis is a specific variant of angioedema with recurring periorbital swelling that leads to stretching of the periorbital skin, particularly of the upper eyelid. What patient factors might steer the facial plastic surgeon away from a coronal approach to a brow lift? A high hairline, particularly in women, male pattern baldness, and asymmetric brow ptosis are all patient factors that might steer a facial plastic surgeon away from a coronal approach to a brow lift. With asymmetric brows, a direct brow lift may be desired for titration to ideal brow height on each side. And finally, what are two landmarks used to identify the frontal branch, and how are they defined? Two commonly referenced landmarks used to identify the frontal branch are the sentinel vein and the patangae line. The sentinel vein, also known as the medial zygomaticotemporal vein, lies between the temporoparietal and deep temporal fascia, and typically points toward the frontal branch of the facial nerve. The patangae line is an imaginary line tracing the course of the frontal branch that runs from half a centimeter below the tragus to one and a half centimeters above the lateral brow. Auricular deformity can affect up to 5% of the population and can have a familial component. Uh, When assessing the presence of a deformity, although this isn't where we put all of our efforts, remember the normal anatomy that the projection of the ear is about 25 degrees, that uh, conchoscaphal and conchomastoid angles are about 90 degrees, and there's a slight posterior angulation of the whole oracle at about 15 to 30 degrees.
The oracle is derived from the first and second branchial arches, forming the six hillocks of His. As we said, the first three are derived from the first branchial arch and become the tragus, helical root, and helix. And hillocks of His four through six become the antihelix, scapha, and lobule, and they are derived from the second branchial arch. The most common ear deformity is promenoris, uh, which can be caused by a number of etiologies, including an underdeveloped antihelical fold and a deep conchal bowl. Ear deformities, if caught early, can be corrected in non-surgical manners, such as with splinting. For surgical correction of ear deformity, this can usually be performed as early as age five or six, but as Dr. Hamilton said, it's nice to have patient buy-in uh, when you're going to the operating room. The two most common methods for correcting the protruding ear are the furnace technique, which addresses the conchal bowl, and the mustarde technique, which addresses the antihelical fold. Complications include hematoma, infection, telephone ear, and other ear deformities, but as Dr. Hamilton said, some of these can be avoided uh, with careful inspection in the operating room. And when done correctly, otoplasty can result in improved quality of life and self-esteem. We'll now move on to the question asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds, and then give the answer. So the first question is, describe the hillocks of Hiss. From what branchial arches are they derived and what do they become? So hillocks of Hiss one through three come from the first branchial arch and become the tragus, helical root, and helix. Hillocks of Hiss four through six are derived from the second branchial arch and become the antihelix, scapha, and lobule. Next question. Describe the normal angles of the following, the conchomastoid angle, the conchoscaphal angle, and the auriculocephalic angle. So these terms can be somewhat confusing because they're long descriptive words, but the conchomastoid angle is the angle of the conchal bowl off of the mastoid, and that's 90 degrees. And then the conchoscaphal angle is also 90 degrees, which is about the fold of the antihelix. Finally, the auriculocephalic angle, which is the angle at which the ear protrudes laterally off of the side of the head, is about uh, 15 to 30 degrees. Next question, describe the furnace technique. The furnace technique addresses the conchal bowl, and generally speaking, this is a pinning back of the conchal bowl to the mastoid periosteum. For the final question, describe the mustarde technique. This is used to address the antihelix, and generally speaking, this creates a more defined antihelix and is uh, done by placing horizontal mattress sutures to pin the scaphoid fossa to the posterior aspect of the conchal bowl. There are specific uh, measurements regarding uh, how long these should be. They should be about 15 millimeters long and 10 millimeters wide and separated by one to three millimeters. To briefly summarize a very comprehensive discussion, rhinoplasty for nasal deformity is very interrelated with rhinoplasty for nasal breathing, and often improvement in aesthetic outcome leads to functional improvement as well. A careful assessment of nasal anatomy and the interplay between these structures is very complex and needs to be meticulously evaluated in each patient for surgical planning. During the history, it's important to elucidate the patient's motivations and goals for surgery in addition to more standard history components such as prior nasal trauma or surgery, medical comorbidities, and drug use. 
As always, pre- and post-operative photo documentation should be obtained, both for surgical planning and outcome tracking. We focus broadly on surgical correction of the nasal tip, uh, nasal dorsum, and nasal base, with a variety of surgical approaches discussed for each. Like we discussed in a rhinoplasty for nasal breathing episode, post-operative care includes splinting, reducing risk factors for post-op edema, and activity restriction. Now I'll move on to a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, wait a moment to give you time to think of the answer or pause the podcast and then give the answer. So starting off, we discussed the pathophysiology behind a number of nasal deformities. What are some causes of saddle nose deformity? Saddle nose deformity is ultimately caused by lack of septal support underlying the nasal dorsum. This can be from prior surgery that did not leave adequate septal integrity, trauma, particularly with septal hematoma and resulting cartilage compromise, cocaine use, vasculitis like GPA, relapsing polychondritis, and infectious etiologies like leprosy or syphilis. Second up, what are the three main approaches to a rhinoplasty? The three main approaches to rhinoplasty are endonasal non-delivery, endonasal delivery, and open rhinoplasty. Non-delivery is usually used with dorsal irregularities, whereas delivery allows for more exposure of the lower lateral cartilage and better tip manipulation. Note that we are quote-unquote delivering uh, the lower lateral cartilages. The open approach provides maximal exposure for extensive tip work and graft placement, but remember, this can lead to more edema and disrupts interdermal ligaments. And finally, describe the inverted V deformity. The inverted V deformity occurs when the upper lateral cartilages collapse or disarticulate from the nasal septum, resulting in a pinching of the middle third of the nose that is aesthetically undesirable and can narrow the internal nasal valve. To briefly summarize, rhinoplasty for improvement of nasal breathing is performed for a variety of reasons, both in terms of patient symptoms and the pathophysiologic underpinnings behind their breathing difficulty, which can include mucosal and sensory etiologies as well as structural causes. A careful assessment of nasal anatomy and the interplay between these structures is a very complex process and needs to be meticulously evaluated in each patient for surgical planning. Patients should be assessed for a history of nasal trauma and prior nasal surgeries, as well as other comorbidities, such as allergy or other sources of nasal mucosal swelling, granulomatous disease, vasculitis, certain infectious diseases, or cocaine use. And pre- and post-operative photo documentation should be obtained, both for surgical planning and for outcome tracking. We discussed a variety of different surgical options to widen the internal and external nasal valves, correct saddle nose deformity, and correct septal deviation. We also discussed options for graft harvest and placement, as well as thoughtful use, usage of osteotomies to achieve our surgical goals. Postoperatively, most patients are splinted externally and with septal splints internally if septoplasty was performed and the surgeon can consider other post-op care precautions like a low-sodium diet, head-of-bed elevation, intranasal packing, and activity restriction. 
And now on to our question portion of the episode. As always, I'll ask the question, wait a moment to give you time to think of the answer or pause the podcast and then give the answer. First off, which structures form the internal and external nasal valves respectively? The internal nasal valve is formed by the nasal septum medially, the upper lateral cartilage and piriform aperture laterally, and the inferior turbinate inferiorly. The external nasal valve is caudal to this, bounded laterally by the piriform aperture and complex of ala and lateral crews of the lower lat, superiorly by the upper lat, and medially by the septum and columella. Second, describe the tripod model of nasal structure. The tripod model, originally described by Jack Anderson in the late 1960s, describes the interdependence of the lower lateral cartilages in tip support. The three legs of the tripod are the paired medial crura and the two individual lateral crura. Moving one affects the positioning of all three. Finally, we discussed a number of surgical options for targeting the internal and external nasal valves. Try and name three options for widening each valve. A number of options exist for widening the internal and external nasal valves. To widen the internal nasal valves, we discussed septoplasty, spreader grafts and flaps, flaring sutures, butterfly grafts, and turbinoplasty. To widen the external nasal valve, we can consider caudal septoplasty, lateral suspension suture, lateral curl repositioning, or lateral curl flip-flop, and grafts, either alar batten grafts or lateral curl stroke grafts. As you can imagine, the technique chosen for widening the valve depends on the underlying cause for a valve collapse. Moving on to the summary section, in this episode, we discussed skin grafts and local flaps. The decision to use a local flap can be based on a number of defect factors, including size, depth, location on the body, and types of tissues missing. These tissue rearrangements generally rely on random blood flow from the subdermal plexus, which limits the size of the flap, particularly the length. Because of this, it's particularly important during workup to assess a patient for factors that can impair wound healing and uh, flap success, including tobacco or nicotine use, protein or electrolyte deficiencies, including malabsorptive disorders or malnutrition, collagen vascular diseases, vasculopathies, hypothyroidism, diabetes, hypertension, and immunodeficiency. Steroid use, increased bleeding risk from blood thinner vitamin use, and chelate history should also be elicited. When planning a reconstruction, we should take into account relaxed skin tension lines and minimizing tension on the final reconstruction, as well as facial subunits, with the classic teaching being to remove the entirety of a subunit if more than 50% is missing. We should also consider estimated wound contraction over time uh, to prevent gradual deformity or functional or aesthetic uh, undesirable results. In terms of reconstructive options, skin grafts are usually broken down into split thickness, full thickness, and composite grafts, and are often chosen based on size, depth, and location of wound, function of the surrounding tissue, and desired aesthetic result. 
Tissue expanders can also be used with enough preparation time to grow enough skin for either a graft or a regional flap. Local flaps can be categorized as tissue advancement flaps, including V to Y and O to H flaps, rotational flaps like O to Z or O to T flaps, and transpositional flaps such as Z-plasty, rhombic flaps, and bilobed flaps, as well as interpolated flaps like tarsoconjunctival or nasolabial flaps. We also discussed axial flaps a little bit, which are technically regional flaps but are sometimes lumped into the local flap category, even though they have a blood supply from a named vessel like paramedian forehead flap, temporalis flaps, or inferior turbinate flaps. While normal postoperative complications like bleeding and infection should be considered, careful attention should be paid to graft or flap failure from poor vascularization or from mechanical shearing forces. Poor vascular supply can be improved with therapies such as nitropaste and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Tissue expanders can have a number of additional associated complications, including wound breakdown, implant infection, skin erosion, alopecia, or even bone resorption. They need to be inflated more slowly or even removed if these occur. Because soft tissue wounds take at least six months to a year to fully mature, patients are usually followed for at least this amount of time to assure a desirable functional and aesthetic result. And now, we'll finish up as always with some review questions. Like always, I'll ask the question, wait a moment for you to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then say the answer. Starting off, describe the reconstructive ladder. The reconstructive ladder is used to describe reconstructive options from least invasive to most invasive and progresses as follows. Secondary intention, then primary intention, grafts, local flaps, and tissue expansion, then regional flaps, and finally free flaps. Some add a new rung at the top for composite heteroplastic grafts, such as facial transplantation. It should be noted that, like many things in medicine, the reconstructive ladder provides a framework for reconstructive planning rather than an absolute roadmap for how to treat a particular patient. Next, describe the phases of wound healing. The phases of wound healing are generally described in four phases. The first is hemostasis during the first few hours after injury. The second is inflammation, encompassing the first four days after injury, and during which time neutrophils and fibroblasts influx into the wound. Third is the proliferative phase from about four days to about two weeks after injury, when tissue reepithelializes and begins neovascularization deposits type 3 collagen, and begins to contract via myofibroblast action. The fourth stage is maturation, occurring from about 2 weeks to 6 to 12 months after injury, and involves conversion of disorganized type 3 collagen to organized type 1 collagen. Notably, hemostasis and inflammation are often lumped together as a single phase. A couple of numbers-based questions are next. What are some landmarks for wound tensile strength as a wound heals over time? Wounds are typically expected to achieve about 15% of their original strength by 3 weeks, 60% by 6 weeks, and 80% at 6 months, which is expected as the asymptotic maximum for a wound's final strength. These numbers often vary a little bit depending on which textbook you're reading. We expect a flap length to change depending on how much it's rotated. How much would you expect a transposed flap to shorten based on rotation? We expect about 5% shortening for a flap transposed over 45 degrees, 15% shortening at 90 degrees, 
and 40% shortening at 180 degrees. Though remember, that would likely lead to a standing cone deformity. And how much would you expect a Z-plasty scar to lengthen based on rotation? A Z-plasty scar of 30 degrees will reorient the central segment uh, by 30 degrees and lengthen it by about 25%. Angles of 45 degrees will reorient the central segment by 60 degrees and lengthen it by about 50%. And a Z-plasty with angles of 60 degrees will reorient by 90 degrees and lengthen by 75%. And finally, describe the histologic changes induced with tissue expanders. Pressure exerted by tissue expanders causes the dermis, subcutaneous tissues, and underlying muscle to thin, but the overlying epidermis will thicken. Additionally, interstitial fluid redistributes and collagen and elastin fibers reorient, accounting for the mechanical creep of the soft tissue and leading to skin lengthening. Fibrous capsules often also formed around the expander. And finally, excessive pressure can cause follicular destruction and underlying bone resorption. All right, well, that concludes this episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. To summarize our discussion today, regional and free flaps are angiosome-based flaps with blood supply either left pedicled, as with regional flaps, or transplanted from the donor site into the recipient site, as with free flaps. They are typically used to reconstruct large defects involving multiple tissue types and facial subunits, but can sometimes be used for smaller defects when an independent blood supply is useful. On history and physical, it is important to assess whether the surrounding tissue has been previously operated upon or radiated, and to assess patients' risk factors for predisposing to flap failure, which includes ability to follow up regularly, as well as medical comorbidities like vasculopathies, immunodeficiency, or diabetes. Physical exam in these patients should also evaluate vascular supply to the donor tissue when able, for example, with an Allen test before radial free flap surgery. Besides photo documentation, it's also beneficial to obtain preoperative angiography or duplex ultrasound of the donor tissue to ensure adequate collateral perfusion, or even of the recipient tissue if prior surgery or vascular compromise is suspected. Fine-cut CT can also be useful for bony defects in designing implants or cutting guides for osteocutaneous flaps. We discussed a number of regional flaps, such as paramedian forehead, FAM, temporoparietal fascia, pectoralis, delta pectoral, and supraclavicular flaps, all of which have their source vessels remain in place via a pedicle, as well as free flaps, such as fibular, radial forearm, and iliac crest free flaps, which have their source vessel removed with them and reconnected at the recipient site. When deciding between whether to use a regional or free flap, it's important to take into account the type of tissue needing to be replaced, particularly if bone is needed, as well as availability of donor vessels at the recipient site, size and location of the defect, and skin tone and texture matching. The time course for healing and need for future therapies, such as postoperative radiation, also factors into this decision. While we expect both regional and free flaps to have 90% or greater success rates, these flaps, particularly free flaps, require meticulous postoperative care to avoid vascular compromise. This classically includes avoiding pressors, maintaining adequate perfusion pressure, given postoperative anticoagulation, and frequent monitoring of flap perfusion, particularly during the first 72 hours as the vessel anastomoses endothelialize. If vascular compromise is detected, flaps can be salvaged either operatively or with nitropaste or therapy. 
Down the line, scar revision and flap debulking can be considered, but are usually deferred for at least a year to allow for complete wound healing, scar contracture, and flap atrophy. And finally, we'll finish up with a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, pause for a few moments for you to think of the answer, and then say the answer. First off, describe what an angiosome is and how we use it for regional and free flap surgical planning. An angiosome is a region of skin and subcutaneous tissue, which can include muscle and bone, that is supplied by a specific source artery or arteries. If you harvest that tissue with its source artery and draining veins, the entire angiosome should still stay perfused. In this way, the tissue can be regionally transferred, as in the case of the pedicle remaining intact, or completely removed and re-anastomosed, as in the case of free flaps. Next, what are we looking for with a duplex ultrasound or angiogram of the legs before a fibular free flap? Before a fibular free flap, angiography demonstrating three vessel runoff from the perineal, anterior tibial, and posterior tibial arteries should be obtained. This assures that the foot is adequately perfused with the anterior and posterior tibial arteries once the fibular flap and its perineal artery are removed, avoiding foot necrosis. And to wrap up, what therapy should all patients receiving Heruda therapy or leech therapy be placed on prophylactically? Leeches have a symbiotic relationship with Aeromonas species bacteria and can transfer these to patients when used in therapy. Thus, patients receiving leech therapy should receive anti-Aeromonas antibiotic prophylaxis, usually with a fluoroquinolone antibiotic. Additionally, many patients, very understandably, may require additional therapy or even sedation to be able to tolerate leech therapy. That wraps up our discussion for today. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. To summarize, microtia describes the range of ear uh, from anosia, or no ear, to a structurally intact ear that is smaller than expected. We discussed normal ear anatomy and growth, particularly that the oracle is about 85% of adult size by age 5 and about fully sized by age 8 to 10. About 50% of microtia patients are syndromic, mostly Treacher-Collins and Goldenhar syndromes, uh, but can also be attributed to teratogens, infections such as rubella, or presumed vascular insult. On history, we should be evaluating for any family history of genetic abnormalities or hearing loss. And physical exams should always assess for canal atresia, as well as the degree of microtia. And we discussed a couple of grading systems, most commonly the MARCS grading system, for quantifying microtia severity. Evaluation of other syndromic physical exam findings, such as cleft palate, ocular abnormalities, facial asymmetry, mandibular hypoplasia, etc., should also be performed. Children with microtia should have their hearing formally evaluated, either with an audiogram or an ABR if they're too young, and a CT temporal can be performed to grade any associated canal atresia. Other workup for possible syndromic etiology can include a renal ultrasound for brachioretorenal syndrome, cardiothoracic imaging for CHARGE or DeGeorge syndrome, and keep in mind that many of these patients will require multidisciplinary care. The timing of surgical repair is controversial, but is typically undertaken between the ages of 5 and 10, 
with canal trees to repair after microtia repair to avoid blood supply disruption. Microtia can be repaired with an auricular prosthesis, an alloplastic implant, usually from MedPore, or a cartilage autograft. And we discussed a number of factors to consider when planning reconstruction to include patient and family preference, patient medical comorbidities, and the ease of the procedure. Alloplastic and cartilage implants are typically staged to allow for neovascularization of the flap and reduce risk of necrosis. The most common complications after microtial repair are the need for revision surgery due to either cartilage extrusion, necrosis, or reabsorption with cartilage autographs, or migration or malpositioning, usually with MedPore implants. However, patients and families should be counseled about hematoma, infection, and even facial nerve injury, and thoracic complications from rib harvest, such as atelectasis or pneumothorax, can also be seen. We'll end with a couple of review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, wait a few moments to let you think of the answer, or pause the podcast, and then say the answer. First off, describe the hillocks of Hiss and their derivatives on the fully developed oracle. The hillocks of Hiss are derived from the first and second branchial arches and fuse around 22 weeks of gestation to form the oracle. Hillocks 1 through 3 are derived from Meckel's cartilage from the first arch, and hillocks 4 through 6 from Reichert's cartilage from the second arch. The tragus is from hillock 1, the cruise from 2, helix from 3, antihelical cruise from 4, antihelix from 5, and the antitragus and lobule from 6. Though notably, some texts do describe the antihelix is coming from 4, the antitragus is from 5, and the lobule from 6. While the etiology of microtia remains unknown, some proposed mechanisms include inappropriate growth or fusion of the hillocks of Hiss, or premature regression of the stapedial artery, which is thought to be an early vascular supply to the developing ear. Next question, describe the Marks grading system. For a bonus, see if you can recall one additional grading system as well. The Marks grading system grades microtia on a scale of 1 to 4. In grade 1 microtia, all subunits are present but smaller and can include deformities like lop ear, where the auricular cartilage is angled inferiorly, and cup ear, where there is an anterior protrusion of the auricular cartilage. Grade 2 microtia denotes some subunits are severely underdeveloped or absent, with the lower half of the oracle usually more developed than the upper half. Grade 3 microtia, also known as peanut ear, involves only a small superior remnant and an anteriorly deflected inferior lobule, while grade 4 denotes anosia. As a bonus, we'll review the Nagata, Weirda, and Jarsdorfer grading systems. Uh, the Weirda classification is broken down into first, second, and third degree dysplasia and places more emphasis on reconstructive requirements. First degree dysplasia doesn't require additional skin or cartilage to reconstruct. Second-degree dysplasia has all major structures present but requires addition of cartilage and skin, and third-degree dysplasia has few to no recognizable landmarks requiring total reconstruction. The Nagata classification describes conchotype microtia, small conchotype microtia, and lobule-type microtia, which are broadly similar to Mark's grade 2 and Mark's grade 3, less severe and more severe, respectively and are aimed more towards determining surgical incisions than classifying morphology. 
Recall that the Jarsdorfer grading scale is used to predict post-operative hearing outcomes with atresia repair based on presence of anatomical landmarks, with one point assigned for the presence on CT temporal of an open oval window, round window, middle ear space, facial nerve, malleus incus complex, incus stapes connection, mastoid pneumatization, and an external ear. Two points are assigned for a present stapes bone. Patients with a score of 7 or higher typically have better hearing outcomes postoperatively. Alright, and final question. Describe the stages of a Brent technique for cartilage autograph microtia reconstruction. The Brent technique consists of four stages with three months between each stage, roughly, to allow vascular supply formation and reduce the risk of necrosis. Stage one consists of cartilage harvest, shaping, and placement classically from the synchondrosis of the contralateral ribs 7 through 8 for the main graft and rib 9 for a helical rim. Stage 2 is lobule transposition with a modified Z-plasty, and stage 3 results in oracle elevation with a split-thickness skin graft to create a postauricular sulcus. The final stage involves tracheal reconstruction. That wraps up our discussion on microtia. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. To briefly summarize, facelift or redidectomy is most commonly utilized to create a more youthful appearing face. It can be performed for a number of different indications, including diffuse wrinkles or ridids, a suboptimal cervicomental angle, or to counteract fat and muscle atrophy and sagging over time. Understanding the layers of the face, particularly where the facial nerve courses, is imperative to a good dissection and lasting results. As always, a careful history and physical exam with a focus on any risk factors for poor wound healing should be performed. We also reviewed the Glogau scale and Dito classification, which can be helpful to quantify the extent of wrinkling and favorability of the neck contours, respectively. We discussed a number of surgical options for rididectomies, including the subcutaneous lift, SMAS lift, deep plane technique, and various combinations of these, including composite, subperiosteal, multiplane, and triplane techniques, and mini lifts, which are usually aimed at achieving a more youthful neck. We also discussed mid face lift, which are adjunctive techniques to elevate the malar fat pad and suborbicularis oculi fat, or SUF, and include endoscopic, intraoral, and lateral canthotomy approaches. The most common complication postoperatively is patient dissatisfaction, with the most common technical error being greater auricular nerve injury. Other feared complications include hematoma, facial nerve injury, skin sloughing or necrosis, parotid injury, and scar or contour irregularities. And postoperative depression can be particularly high in this subset of patients. Many patients undergo multiple rididectomies in their lifetime, and counterintuitively, future surgeries may actually benefit from improved flap vascularity and ease of elevation. We'll wrap up as usual with a couple review questions. As usual, I'll ask the question, pause for a moment to give you time to think of the answer or pause the podcast, and then I'll say the answer. First off, name the anatomic layers of the face involved in rididectomy. The anatomic layers of the face are from superficial to deep, the skin, subcutaneous fat, superficial musculoaponeurotic system, or SMAS, and the muscles of facial expression, below which is the parotidomasteric fascia. We should note that the facial nerve runs between the parotidomasteric fascia and the buccal fat pad lies deep to the facial nerve. Second, what is the difference between imbrication and plication? 
Imbrication is when a redundant section of tissue is resected and the remaining tissue is sutured together with some overlap, creating a two-layer thick section of tissue at the junction. Plication is when redundant tissue is folded over itself and all layers are sewn together, which results in a three-layer thick section of tissue. And finally, what are some classically described differences in performing rididectomy in a male versus a female patient? When performing a rididectomy in a woman, a post-tragal incision is usually used to better camouflage the scar. However, in male patients, a preauricular incision is more common to avoid pulling hair-bearing skin in the beard and sideburns toward the ear. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. To briefly summarize, orbital fractures involve any of the four walls of the orbit, while nasoorbitoethmoid complex fractures, or NOEs, involve the medial orbital wall, nasal bone, and a component of the ethmoid bone. They may both present with periorbital edema or ecchymosis, gaze restriction, or cranial nerve deficits, as well as ophthalmologic injuries such as global retinal or retinal trauma. NOE fractures will additionally characteristically present with telecanthus or saddle nose deformity and are often concomitant with other facial, skull, or C-spine fractures. A fine-cut CT of the face, usually without contrast, is often used to assess the degree of injury, and severity of NOEs may be further described by the Markowitz-Manson classification. Operative intervention is indicated emergently, i.e. within 24 hours, for patients with ocular cardiac reflex, diplopia and primary gaze, or impending vision loss from increased intraocular pressure. Otherwise, operative repair may be delayed one to even two weeks to allow for swelling to resolve. Operative repair usually involves open reduction with internal fixation and may be approached through a transconjunctival, transcorunculaire, subciliary, subtarsal, or infraorbital approaches, or through an existing laceration. NOE fragments with the medial canthal tendon may be additionally replaced with transnasal wiring to resolve telecanthus, but need to be carefully placed to avoid iatrogenic telecanthus. The most common uh, complications include ectropion, epiphora, plate extrusion or infection, damage to orbital contents, or even retroorbital hematoma, and patients infrequently require surgical revision with possible lacrimal duct probing or hardware removal. Before we wrap up the episode, we'll end with some review questions. As always, I'll ask the question, pause for a moment to let you think of the answer, or pause the podcast, and then I'll give the answer. First question. What is the difference between orbital apex syndrome and superior orbital fissure syndrome, and which cranial nerves are involved in each syndrome? Both orbital apex syndrome and superior orbital fissure syndrome involve weakness of cranial nerves 3, 4, 5, 1, and 6. In other words, palsy of the muscles involved in extraocular movement and cheek hypesthesia. The difference between them is that orbital apex syndrome additionally involves cranial nerve 2 with decreased visual acuity in primary gaze. Second up, describe the Markowitz-Manson classification for NOE grading. The Markowitz-Manson classification is broken down into types 1, 2, and 3 NOE fractures. Type 1 involves a single central fragment with the medial canthal tendon attached. Type 2 involves comminuted fragments with the medial canthal tendon still attached to a single fragment, which differentiates it from a type 3, which is comminuted with disruption of the medial canthal attachment. 
What are the absolute and relative indications for operative intervention for NOEs or orbital fractures? And what are some contraindications for operative intervention? Absolute indications for operative intervention include entrapment, enophthalmus, or hypoglobus. Note that entrapment is what leads to the oculocardiac reflex and diplopia symptoms that can necessitate emergent intervention. Additionally, fracture size criteria of greater than 50% of the orbital floor or a fracture size greater than 1.5 square centimeters is often cited as an absolute indication for surgery, but is less commonly used. Mild diplopia within 20 to 30 degrees of primary gaze is a relative indication depending on the patient's uh, preferences. Contraindications for immediate operative repair include globe rupture or hyphema, retinal detachment, or traumatic optic neuropathy. Involvement of the patient's only seeing eye may also be a relative contraindication and should be thoroughly discussed with the patient. And last question, in orbital fracture repair, what is the most commonly injured extraocular muscle? For all comers, the inferior oblique is the most commonly injured muscle during orbital fracture repair. Recall this presents with difficulty moving the affected eye up and out. That's it for our rapid review of facial plastics. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.